A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. After Britain declared war against Germany on the 3rd of September 1939, the first liberation took place, starting in British prisons. With the country desperate to clear its cells for the true enemies of the state, such as spies, traitors, looters and deserters, and in short supply of eligible young men for conscription, any prisoners with three months or less to serve were granted their freedom. Buoyed by a sense of national pride, some prisoners enlisted, but others did not. And with the city's short unexperienced police officers, rationing enforced, and with basic essentials such as soap and fuel being sold at vastly overinflated prices, some ex-cons saw wartime as the perfect opportunity for criminal enterprise and even honest people turned to crime under the cover of the blackout. Between 1939 and 1945, the crime rate in England and Wales rose by 57%, with the number of reported murder cases increasing from 280 in 1939 to 490 in 1945, and with death, injury and disappearance being a daily occurrence in most wartime cities, many murders were impossible to prove. But four horrifying deaths over four nights in four different parts of London's West End were unmistakable as murders committed by a serial sexual sadist whose attacks were random, bloody and brutal. And although by Thursday the 12th of February 1945 on the fifth day of his five-day killing spree, only the badly mutilated bodies of Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley had been found, with Margaret Florence Lowe still lying undiscovered. Barely hours before the agonising death of his final victim, Doris Juney, in one night, having met them just one hour and 200 feet apart, as his bloodlust escalated, the West End's most prolific spree killer would attack two more women. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part five of the full, true 
an untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing in Piccadilly Circus, W1, an iconic London landmark which interconnects the roads of Regent Street, Coventry Street, Shaftesbury Avenue, Piccadilly and Haymarket. Built in 1819, under its original name of Regent Circus, it later became Piccadilly Circus, after the area it covered, coined after local tailor Robert Baker's infamous 17th century collar called the Piccadillo. And that's about as exciting as it gets. Featuring the infamous Criterion Theatre, the London Pavilion, the Ghost of Tower Records, two truly hideous tourist attractions where, for an insulting amount of money, you too can stare at badly sculpted plastic replicas of real people, and a statue which every idiot calls Eros, even though it's not Eros, it's Antiros, the angel of Christian charity, but then again being educated is so overrated as everyone stares at Piccadilly's infamous neon advertising and feels an overwhelming urge to scoff fatty chicken corpses, drink sugary piss, or smell like a footballer's arse, as they suddenly realise that Piccadilly Circus is nothing more than a world-famous semicircular traffic contraflow, where every year millions of dipsticks flock to watch traffic. Oh look, there's a truck. Oh look, there's a bus. Oh look, there's a bike. Oh look, there's an accident. Oh look, blood. Oh look, brains. Oh look, entrails. As a tourist takes a selfie and says, Oh look, there's an Albanian immigrant wearing a cheap Yoda mask who's pretending to float. Ooh, doesn't that look fun? But actually, for us murder aficionados, Piccadilly Circus is fascinating. As it's here that Doris June was heading for her date with the captain, where both Evelyn Oatley and Margaret Florence Lowe were last seen alive, where two local prostitutes, Laura Denmark and Molly de Santos Alves, met a red-headed corporal and a blue-eyed, fair-haired airman, and wave goodbye to Evelyn Oatley just hours before her death. And yet, it was here, on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, at 8pm, where the Blackout Ripper would meet his fourth victim, and her name was Greta Haywood. As always, being a little too eager, and, if she was honest with herself, enthusiastic to escape her home in Kingsbury, northwest London, which she shared with her soon-to-be ex-husband. 30-year-old Margaret Mary Theresa Hayward, whose friends called her Greta, had hopped on the Metropolitan Line to Baker Street, changed onto the Bakerloo Line to Piccadilly Circus, and was stood outside of the Criterion Theatre a full hour too early for her date, with nothing to do but wait. With the shop shut, 
She couldn't blow an hour by browsing. With only two films on at the flicks, being Betty Davis in The Man Who Came to Dinner and Will Hay in The Black Sheep of Whitehall, she didn't want to waste a shilling watching a newsreel, a cartoon and half of a pre-feature five-reel B-movie. With the Criterion Theatre having been requisitioned by the BBC to perform live radio for the duration of the war, and tonight's broadcast being the brutally dull music show, Take Your Choice, followed by the BBC Salon Orchestra, conducted by Leslie Bridgewater, Greta was already bored of waiting, but she didn't fancy falling into a coma. And even though Café Monaco was only on the opposite side of Piccadilly Circus, being packed full of sozzled servicemen, as an attractive blonde female sitting by herself, her chance of enjoying a quiet drink there was zero. And so it was there, at the bottom of the stairs of the Criterion Theatre, with time ticking by, her date an hour away, and Greta all out of options. That a blue-eyed, fair-haired airman approached her with a polite and pleasant proposition she simply couldn't refuse. Excuse me, are you waiting for someone? The airman asked, in an accent which although well-spoken, and with the appearance of wealth, class and status, had the unmistakable twang and reassuring hints of North Yorkshire, where Greta was from. Sensing a pickup attempt, she brushed off his request with the truth that she was awaiting a date with an army captain, her clever ploy being to pull rank on this inferior airman, the distinctive white flash on his side cap, suggesting he was still a cadet. But with the snow turning to drizzle, 9pm still an hour away, and the airman seeming harmless enough, with a sweet smile, a kind face, and a gentlemanly offer that, I could buy you a drink while you wait for your friend. She thought it would certainly pass the time, and in his presence, she felt safe. The Criterion Theatre on Piccadilly Circus began life in the late 1800s as a grand concert hall full of cafes, galleries and a fine dining restaurant in an opulent ballroom which played host to stars, artists and royals. But after years of neglect, by 1942, the restaurant had descended into being simply another shoddy pickup joint for sailors, soldiers and airmen. It was called Brasserie Universelle, but it was more appropriately known as the Universal Brothel or the Brass Ass. As always, the bar of Brasserie Universelle was rammed with the sticky bustle of hot bodies, as British and Canadian servicemen drank, danced and dry-humped their latest squeeze or conquest and with the air thick with lewd chatter, fast jazz, cigarette smoke, and the occasional unpleasant whiff of jizz. As Greta and the airman drank a whiskey together, it was hard to hear themselves think. 
and as much as he failed to flirt with her, by telling her she was beautiful, and trotting out other equally unimaginative and wretch-worthy chatterblinds, she reminded him of her impending date, he politely apologised, and invited her for a spot of dinner, in the quieter, calmer, and less boisterous ambience of the salted almond cocktail bar in nearby Trocadero. So with 50 minutes still to go, feeling a little bit peckish, having not eaten since lunch, and with the airman having agreed to escort her back to the brasserie by 9pm, a time which suited him fine, as the rules of the RAF dictated that he had to be back in his Regent's Park billets by 10.30pm, Greta headed out to supper with the unnamed airman. He didn't seem like a bad sort, Greta thought. Yes, he was a little tipsy, but he wasn't rude, crude or abusive. Yes, his knuckles on his left hand were scraped, but being an airman, he probably did a manual job like a mechanic. And yes, he was a little forward in his approach, but looking rather dashing in his long military grey coat, his shiny black rubber-soled boots, his starched blue tunic with matching blue belt, his neat brown shirt and straightened tie, his side cap emblazoned with the insignia of the Royal Air Force, and slung over his left shoulder was a black gas respirator in a beige canvas bag, the kind of gas mask that all military personnel were required to carry. She knew nothing bad would happen to her, as on the middle finger of his left hand, he wore a gold wedding band. And having offered her a cigarette, she spied a small black and white photo of a pretty blonde lady hidden inside his silver cigarette case, which she thought was engraved with her initials of LW. The Salted Almond Cocktail Bar situated in the Trocadero's original location on the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue and Great Windmill Street, just off the northeast corner of Piccadilly Circus, would have been a good choice for a quiet spot of supper, as being owned by J. Lyon and Sons, creators of corner house tea rooms such as Maison Lyonnaise, it prided itself on being safe, calm and pleasant for women. But sadly, as the night drew on, the same could not be said for Greta's new companion. Being a few whiskies in, with supper looking unlikely, and his disarmingly charming tone having shifted to that of being a lecherous oaf, the airman lustily inquired of Greta, Are you a naughty girl? Ignoring her plea that she wasn't a prostitute, had never been and had no plans to be, and bragged that, I'm not broke, look, as he pried open his wallet, which was stuffed thick with 30 one-pound notes, almost a thousand pounds today. Getting petulant as Greta batted away his advances, he stated, I don't think there's time for supper now, and quickly piped up with, Come out for dinner with me tomorrow evening. And with Greta eager to leave, 
she reluctantly agreed to a date, impressed upon him that sex would not happen, and wrote on a slip of paper her telephone number, which was Collindale 6622, which he then pocketed. And as he huffed, All right, if you don't want to, I can't make you. But you seem like a nice girl and I do really want you. Greta brushed him off again. And as promised, at 8.45pm, he escorted her back for her 9pm date. With the blackout in full force, with every light dipped, dulled or turned off, and even the illuminated signs of Piccadilly Circus switched off, the streets would have been in near darkness, as Greta was guided out of the Trocadero, taking the brisk three-minute walk straight down the bustling throng of Shaftesbury Avenue and across Piccadilly Circus, back to the entrance of the Criterion Theatre. But then again, the airman didn't take the most direct route, and with Greta having been subjected to a tirade of moody drunken mumblings by the airman, having bragged that he had once knocked a girl out. She didn't argue with him for fear of incurring his wrath, as he led the nervous lady down the thinner, quieter and darker side streets to the brasserie's back entrance. And as they entered German Street, an almost pitch-black, empty side street behind Piccadilly Circus, as Greta pulled out of her handbag an eight-inch metal torch, to see her way, and possibly alert a passing policeman to her need for help. The airman snatched the torch from her hand, bulking, you won't be needing that, as he casually strolled past the brasserie's back entrance. With her heart racing, her eyes wide and her mouth dry, as the airman led her south down St Albans Street, a narrow alley leading away from the brasserie, he expressed his wish to give her a goodnight kiss. And in a chillingly eerie statement, possibly uttered barely four nights before to a painfully shy 41-year-old pharmacist in Montague Place. He said, aren't there any air raid shelters nearby? But as he led her into the ominous silence of the equally dark St. James's Market, in the cold shadow of the captain's cabin pub, the airman dragged Greta into an unlit doorway. Removing his RAF-issue gas respirator in its beige canvas bag from his left shoulder and placing it on the ground, the airman pulled Greta's trembling body close as he started to kiss her. The fetid stench of tobacco on his breath as he rammed his tongue deep into her mouth. And as his hands grabbed at her hips, tugged at her blouse and groped at her breasts, she pushed him away, gasping, You mustn't! You mustn't do that! But with his passion inflamed, and not being a man who took no for an answer, with an odd glint in his eyes, having placed both hands on her quivering cheeks, she thought, 
having heard her plea. He was either forthcoming with an apology, or a tender but friendly kiss. But as his left hand slipped down her face, slowly caressing her neck, he tightly gripped her throat and squeezed, all the while muttering, You won't! You won't! until her vision went black. Nobody heard her screams, nobody saw her face, nobody found any weapons. And at 9pm, on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, at the back of the Criterion Theatre on Piccadilly Circus, barely two hours before the brutal, shocking and sadistic murder of Doris Junet, Margaret Mary Theresa Hayward known to her friends as Greta, became the fourth victim of the Blackout Ripper. Just like the others, she was a lone female. Just like the others, she was attacked in private. Just like the others, she was robbed. But unlike the others, she didn't die. Hearing shoes scuffling, a muffled croaky voice, and seeing a torch frantically bobbing, as 24-year-old night porter John Shine approached St Albans Street, he spotted a pair of women's legs slumped on the wet floor, sticking out of an unlit doorway. Sensing something was wrong, John Shine shouted, Police! at the top of his lungs panicking the ominous shape which loomed over the collapsed lady and before he could do anything the blackout ripper disappeared into the darkness and although she was unconscious Greta was alive but did her survival lead to the death of another woman? At a little after 10pm, barely an hour later, with his heart pumping, his nerves tingling, and his bloodlust unsated, having sunk several more whiskies, the slightly dishevelled airman spotted a lone female standing in the darkened doorway of Odenio's restaurant, on the nearby corner of Regent Street and Piccadilly Circus, where just two days before, Evelyn Oatley was last seen alive. Being a tall, slim and attractive lady, with bobbed flame-red hair, luminous pale skin, stunning grey eyes, and dressed in a black tailored coat, skirt and hat, he was instantly aroused by her. As a 34-year-old soon-to-be divorcee, who had succumbed to sex work simply to pay the rent, she reluctantly hopped in a taxi, with the drunken airman and took him back to her Paddington flat. And although she was known locally as Mrs. King, her real name was Catherine Mulcahy. Unlike before, 
The sozzled airman wasn't in the mood for small talk, and having paid her two one-pound notes up front for sex, roughly sixty pounds today, Catherine sighed, I wish I could make five pounds tonight, at which he flashed his bulging wallet, peeled off three further one-pound notes for her, and in the back seat of the taxi, having got down on his knees, lifted up her skirt, and pulled aside her knickers, he began to kiss her genitals. As their taxi drove west along Oxford Street, passing Selfridges and Doris Junet. Having politely pacified his advances in her soft Irish brogue, stating, Don't be silly, we'll be at my flat soon enough. Catherine was intimidated by his eagerness, as their taxi continued up Edgware Road, along Sussex Gardens, and stopped just shy of Paddington Station, outside of 29 Southwick Street. As a taxi pulled away, a bitterly cold wind blew down the dark and strangely quiet side street. And although Catherine shivered, it wasn't just the icy gust which riddled her skin with goosebumps. And as she led the amorous airman off the side street, under a darkened archway, and into the eerie silence of Southwick Mews, she unlocked her front door and welcomed into her flat the Blackout Ripper. With Catherine having been out for most of the day, and a winter frost having settled on the icy snow, her small second-floor flat was chillingly cold, and being only sparsely furnished with few comforts, just the basics, like a bed with a sheet, a table with a candlestick, a washstand with a pack of razor blades, and a wardrobe full of clothes, hats, curling tongs, and a collection of kitchen cutlery, she popped a shilling in the coin slot of her gas fire to warm the flat up as they undressed. Being naked, all except for her boots, with her toes too cold to be exposed, Catherine was desperate for the sex to be over and done with quickly. But with the airman ignoring her pleas, the unrolled condom in her hand, and his penis still flaccid. He continued fondling her breasts and kissing her vagina. Lying flat on her back, her trembling body sprawled diagonally across the bed. The airman never once attempted to have sex with Catherine. Instead, straddling her thin, pale torso, with his knees either side of her hips, and an odd glint in his wide blue eyes. He placed both hands on her quivering cheeks, as if to tenderly kiss her. But as his left hand slowly caressed the nap of her neck, he tightly gripped her throat and squeezed until her vision went black. 
but as a feisty Irish woman. Raised by a drunken father, an absent mother, and several brothers, who had suffered at the hands of an abusive husband, and had given her only child up for adoption. Although timid, Catherine was a born fighter. And having yanked both of his thumbs back so hard that the bone almost snapped, making him squeal, having freed her leg, Catherine booted him squarely in the chest, kicking her assailant right off the bed. Not wishing to spend a second longer with this maniac, Catherine ran from the flat, screaming, Murder! Police! Banging on the doors of her neighbours, Agnes Morris and Kitty McQuillan, who came to the naked woman's aid. But he didn't run. Instead, seeming unflustered, almost as if nothing had actually happened, as the airman calmly dressed, fixed his hair, and sparked up a cigarette, being cocky in his lack of haste, he casually apologised to Catherine, tossed her five one-pound notes, and left. The time was roughly 11pm. The date was Thursday the 12th of February 1942, and with his anger rising, his hatred fuming, and his bloodlust unsated, having turned right and strolled down Southwick Street, the blackout ripper disappeared into the darkness of Sussex Gardens and the home of his final victim. But unlike his other attacks, this time there were screams. This time there were witnesses. This time they had seen his face. And this time he had left behind evidence. Roughly one mile away, in a dark alley at the back of Piccadilly Circus, having sustained cuts, bruises, concussion, and a fractured larynx. Although she struggled to breathe, with the aid of the night porter, John Shine, Greta Hayward made her way to West End Central Police Station, where she gave a description of the man who attacked her. Although a little fuzzy at first, Greta quickly compiled a detailed description of her unnamed attacker, stating that he was a British airman, aged 30s-ish, 5 foot 9 inches tall, clean-shaven, soft features, light blue eyes, slim build, fair-haired, dressed in a Royal Air Force blue uniform, with a long black greatcoat, a woolen side cap with a white cadet's emblem, and over his left shoulder he carried a black gas respirator in a beige canvas bag. And although her depiction was highly accurate, with the attacks all having occurred during World War II, that description could easily match one of thousands of airmen in and around London that day. But one detail was unique. <laughs> 
In his haste to escape, Greta's attacker had dropped his gas mask. And although it was nothing more than a standard issue gas respirator, made in a generic black rubber, and carried in a nondescript beige canvas bag, which was mass-produced, cheaply made, and widely distributed to all military personnel across the entire British Armed Forces. Inside his gas mask, for fear of confusing it with the millions of others which dotted about the country, in black permanent marker, he had written his Royal Air Force serial number. A very unique six-digit code, which is identifiable to just one person. And his name was Gordon Frederick Cummins. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget to join us next week for the sixth part in the true story of the Blackout Ripper. And although we still have a few more episodes to go, if you have any questions about the previous episodes so far, please do message me on social media as I will include these in a special question and answer episode at the end of this series. Big thank you goes out this week to my brand new Patreon supporters. They are Jim Balfour, Steve Staderlink, Catherine Williams, and an extra special friend who asked to remain anonymous. But all of them, weirdly, have asked me the same question, which is, which bits of human flesh are the tastiest? Well, friends, I can tell you that in ascending order, they are the bum bum, the booby, the winky, the nunu, the flaps, the muffin top, and the calamari. Bon appétit. Murdermar was researched, written, and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Next week's episode is part six of The Blackout Ripper. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello? 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 Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Extra Mile. If you've never joined, joined us before, this is Extra Mile. This is the uh, extra part at the end of each episode of Murder Mile. This is where we dive in a little bit deeper into each of uh, the cases we've just listened to. And I tell you things that you won't have uh, heard because I didn't put them in the episode or you might m- have missed them. Um, as you can hear, I've moved away from uh, the scrapyard where I re- recorded last week's episode. Uh and now in a nice quiet part of the canal, you probably just heard a church bell ringing there. There's a couple of birds outside, but it's very peaceful. And I deliberately woke up about 5 a.m. to start recording this episode because I thought I just didn't want noise. Do you know, I'm in a nicer part of London, which means there won't be planes flying over from Heathrow. And like last week with the trains going past and the scrapyard. Now all I've got is crows, which I can deal with crows. Um, so uh episode five of the blackout ripper i hope you enjoyed that one um i think you can see why i deliberately left that even though it's slightly out of chronology do you know we've done evelyn hamilton evelyn oatley margaret florence lowe then we did doris june who was actually the last victim i deliberately moved these around so we could go back because i think this episode gives you a greater insight into what he's about and i really wanted to kind of hint at what happened during the murder and kind of half show you what happened with Doris Juno and then give you an insight into him as a person I was going to say a man but I I, don't th- I think we all agree he's not really a man is he so is he a person who knows so um I thought that was quite interesting I really quite enjoyed that episode um I think you can understand why we need to do a roundup episode because even because even with this episode we're answering a lot of questions but there's more um the more questions coming in it's like more it's being and questions are being answered but there's more questions coming in and uh there will be there's still so much more to do which is why i know i originally said possibly seven episodes 
Um, it's probably going to be 10. There's just so much to tell. There really is. Um, because uh, it's just because of all these people, loads of people crossing paths. I still need to tell you the story of, uh, Laura Denmark that I'm looking forward to. Um, another story that I need to dive into is, uh, Doreen Lytton. I need to tell you about her. Um, I was reading her witness statement recently again, and that is really interesting because it really gives you another deep insight into the Blackout Ripper's life. Or, as I can say it now, the life of Gordon Frederick Cummings. I've tried hard not to say that. Um, even if you've gone online and you've, you've thought, oh, I need to find out who it is, and you've checked and you've typed in Blackout Ripper and it's come up with a picture of Gordon Frederick Cummings, um, it makes no difference anyway, because the information on online is very weak. This, you can see why I've spent months doing this. I've, and this isn't just stuff in the National Archives as well. I've been doing my own personal research to dig deeper than the police files had because obviously we've got you know we've got better resources now than they would have had in the 1940s during world war ii so um so they did a great job but what i'm trying to do is fill in a lot of the blanks that obviously they couldn't do back then obviously we have um not archaeology what's the word (sighs) come on mike put the word in here that i'm thinking of the word you're looking for is genealogy dipshit family research what's it called yeah that one um so uh obviously oh you can see here how tired my brain is my brain is really tired i can't think what i'm trying to say uh so yeah there's a lot of evidence and clues in the earlier episodes which are layered across the later episodes uh and there's still more information to come um so i hope you enjoyed that it was uh nice to see that the blackout ripper um get a bit of a come up comeuppance in this episode uh not only has he been uh uncovered not only has he dropped evidence but he got a good square kick right in the chest with uh from Catherine mulcahy wearing her nice big heavy boots so uh i really like that i like that part of the story it's um but 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 then again, you get a good sense of his uh, his arrogance at the end of that. Do you know, he tried to kill her. He tried to put his hands around her throat. And then he's just like, it didn't happen. Oh, I'll just casually put my clothes on. You can see the arrogance within him. Uh, so um, I enjoyed telling that story. Uh, the hardest thing, oddly, with that story was trying to find the universal brasserie. Because um, it's mentioned in all of the... Uh, statement reports from the police and the witnesses but obviously no one ever put down the where it was i think everyone just assumed that everyone knew where universal brasserie was and so they never put down the address which was really frustrating so uh i went searching obviously uh it didn't appear in any kind of books that i could find uh but it, it seemed to be uh an unofficial name uh, which is really annoying. Uh, so I started going through. So uh, I used a lot of um, a lot of soldiers during the, uh, the the VE Day celebrations were in Piccadilly Circus. There's loads of diaries about them going out and getting really drunk and where they went. And loads of them mentioned going to the Universal Brasserie. But of course, none of them mentioned where it was. They all said it was in Piccadilly Circus. And that's the problem is I knew it was on, I knew it was on Piccadilly Circus, but you know what it's like if someone says it's somewhere, it's, it's some, like, uh, a hotel is in Kensington. Half the time it won't be in Kensing, Kensington. It will be in the borough of Kensington, which means it could be in Notting Hill Gate, 
which is not Kensington, I would say. So when someone says something's in Piccadilly Circus, I would say that's in the circle of Piccadilly Circus that you can see, but it could be half a mile away. That's how annoying it is. But I knew, because of the statement, I knew it had a back entrance on German Street. German Street is one street off Piccadilly Circus, so the chance of it having its front entrance on Piccadilly Circus was incredibly high. Uh, so I had to try and find it that way. Um, how did I find it? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, uh, yes, no, I, f- I found out that um, I, it was random because uh, I knew that... Uh, I thought to myself, okay, people always get um, restaurant names wrong. So I thought maybe it's not Universal Brasserie because most you don't really get a British British Brasserie. Sorry, I'm uh, amending some spellings while I'm talking. Uh, You don't normally get British Brasseries. They tend to be continental. And there was a lot of kind of uh, Italian or French Brasseries around there. And I thought, well, let's try something else. Let's not go searching for Universal Brasserie. Let's try... Uh, uni- uh, Brasserie Universal. Let's try that. Let's French, Frenchize for it. And it worked. There it was. Uh, so all of the soldiers referred to it as Universal Brasserie because they were too bloody bone idle to call it Brasserie Universal. And after that, I started finding about brass ass and things like that. It was in a lot of different newspapers where it, you could. People knew about it. It was a bit of a rum place to go. So uh, that was interesting. Uh, it's still there today. Um, it used to be called the Criterion Restaurant. It's on the uh, ground floor and uh, first floor in the Criterion Theatre. Criterion Theatre went through a period of being really shitty in the 50s, 60s, 70s. was going to be demolished, um, but it was saved. And it's now a restaurant called Savini's, I believe, which is a very posh and swanky. And, you know, people like me can't get in there. Um, also on this uh, episode, we heard about a, another restaurant called Odenio's, which is on uh, 54 Regent Street on the corner of uh, Piccadilly Circus and Regent Street. It's now occupied by the ca- by Cafe Royale. Again, a very nice place, very posh. And that is on... Evelyn Oatley's patch so that could be we're not too sure that could be where the Blackout Ripper picked up Evelyn Oatley because that was her patch and we have testimony that says that he would often go into Odinio's for drinks so did he meet her there it's it looks likely doesn't it Um, Cafe Monaco is there as well I've put a video online showing all of these places um, but Cafe Monaco is right on Piccadilly Circus. It's immediately opposite the Criterion Theatre. Uh, it's entirely demolished. It's not there anymore today because they, uh, where the big illuminated signs for Piccadilly Circus are, it's just underneath that where Boots is. Uh, but I will post a picture online as well to show you that. Um, I, I did the video yesterday and it's good fun. You can kind of, as you turn around Piccadilly Circus, you can see how important this area is in terms of Blackout Ripper. Uh, so uh, a couple of odd things that um, I noticed. So with uh, Catherine Mulcahy. Um, oh, I should just really point out with Catherine Mulcahy and Greta Hayward, um, with all the other victims, you notice I did a whole back history of them from basically cradle to grave, really. And we go through their whole history. Um that was made a lot easier with the ladies who were dead. 
uh, Evelyn Oatley, Eve, uh, Evelyn Hamilton, etc. Because obviously with them being dead, their families were interviewed. There was a lot of witness statements and a lot of investigation by the police into their lives to find out whether they had any criminality or things like that. But obviously, with uh, Greta Haywood and Catherine Mulcahy having survived, the police didn't need to do such a thorough job on investigation into their lives because they were talking to these ladies face to face. So they knew exactly that these ladies had... Uh, you know, one was a prostitute, one was just a lady who was picked up. So that's why I haven't gone deep into their lives. I've done some research, but because they didn't die, it didn't prove to be as valuable as as necessary and also this episode was really about learning not about them but about learning who the blackout ripper <gasps> aka gordon frederick cummings who he was which will lead us to the next couple of episodes where we start digging really into his life um so Catherine mulcahy um uh, as you noticed in this episode, so the Blackout Ripper had a big wad of cash on him. He had about thirty pounds, they reckon. Uh, Catherine, Mul he flashed, Kath no, he flashed Greta Hayward his wallet, and she saw that there was about twenty, thirty pounds in there, which adds up. You know, if you think about all the money that he's stolen off all the other prostitutes prior, all that money is in there. We will be going deep into how much money was in there later on. It, it, it comes into play into this episode quite importantly as well, how much money was in there. Uh, but if you notice that he flashed his cash, he had loads of cash, he handed her £2 when they met on Regent Street outside Odenio's. Uh, she said, I wanted to, I want to try and make £5 today. So he handed her an extra £3. And if you think a pound is about £30 pounds ish today so it's a lot of money and then at the end as an apology he gave her five extra pounds so 10 pounds in total so that's about just over 300 pounds it's a lot of money to give um but when they entered the flat i didn't put this in the story because I, I it slowed down the plot just I, I don't I hate the plot slowing down for extraneous information uh it was a coin operated gas uh fire in her flat and she turned to him and said, do you have a shilling to put in the gas fire? And he said, no. And he didn't even bother to check. And I thought that was weird. You know, he's he on one side, he's flashing the cash about how much money he's got. But when she asks him for just a shilling, he says, no. Just find that really weird. Uh, I guess it says something more about him that he, he didn't give a shit about the room being warm. He just wanted to have sex or... He just wanted to be the, the Billy Big Bollocks and flash his money around in front of this lady, basically saying, I can do whatever I want with you because I've got money. Um, I was having to think while I was writing this, would, would the Blackout Ripper have been satisfied if he had killed Greta Hayward? Because the only reason Greta Hayward is still alive, I'm guessing, is because John Shine turned up at that moment when he did. And do you know what? It's between two really busy roads, uh, uh, St. James's Market. So even though it's off the side street, it's literally between, uh, not Coventry Street. Yeah, it's Haymarket and whatever one is next to it, uh, on the way to Piccadilly. So it's, a, it's, even though it's a back street, it's likely that people will go through there. There was a pub there called the Captain's Cabin. So it's likely he would be there. But if John Shine hadn't turned up, if Greta Hayward had been murdered, would the Blackout Ripper be sated? 
Would his bloodlust have been sated? And I think we can probably all agree with this. Probably not. Would he have gone to commit another murder that night? I think possibly. I think possibly. I think you can see that his his violence is escalating. Like with they say with a lot of serial killers or spree killers, there's an escalation in his violence. Ah, uh, so would Dos Juno have survived? Dos Juno have survived? Um, possibly. I mean, would uh, it's hard to tell, isn't it? If he was sated, would he have gone back to his billets in Regent's Park for a rest? Would he have gone on and met another prostitute and not tried to kill her? Like, would he have met up with Catherine Mulcahy, had sex with her, not had sex with her, and then had a cup of tea with her? This is why I'm, I'm looking forward to showing you um, not only uh, Laura Denmark, his his evening with Laura Denmark, the prostitute, but also Doreen Lytton, which is fascinating. It's not an attack at all. It's entirely different. And it gives, it tells you more, I think it tells you more about him than these murders do. I think whether there's something, whether there's some kind of duality going on inside his brain, I'm not too sure. But yeah, they, they will, those will crop up in like episode six, seven, eight. And, uh, I don't know. It's confusing. Um, uh, either, either way, um, I'm not, I'm unsure whether, uh, whether if he had killed Greta Hayward, whether he would have ended up back in Paddington. Maybe he would have gone a different direction and not ended up there. Maybe he just would have gone home. I don't know. So, um, but his desire to kill had escalated to such a level that maybe, maybe he would have killed another lady that night. Maybe having killed one, he was like, Jay needed to kill another. Who knows? Oh, I think I'm getting a cold. Um, so uh, I've popped some videos online. Um, there's Catherine Mulcahy's flat. There's quite a few videos because there was a lot that I had to try and cover. So Catherine Mulcahy's uh, home is on there. <coughs> it looks exactly as it did on the day, the day of the murder, except on the ground on the ground floor was a, uh, a a garage, I believe. It's like a car hire place, 1940s car hire place. Um, but yeah, no, uh, it's, and do you know what? It's exactly as I thought it would be. Uh, it really was. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, I think that's all I have to say. Um, <laughs> so I've run out of steam. <laughs> it's early and the coffee isn't working. And my, do you know, I still got an eye infection. Got an eye infection. I'm on antihistamines. I'm spraying some witch hazel into my eye. Uh, I think I'm getting a cold. Uh, but I'm enjoying this Blackout Ripper. I'm really enjoying writing this. I'm, I'm, I'm planning the episodes for when we get back to regular Murder Mile. Uh, I don't know when we'll come back to doing a multi-part series, but uh, it depends whether I can find something as interesting as the Blackout Ripper. Although now I've expanded Murder Mile a little bit further, because obviously we've got extra Murder Miles, there are things that I'm thinking of doing. Some big interesting cases that I'm looking at maybe doing big multi-parters uh, but I won't say any more about that anyway I hope you enjoyed that thank you for tuning in for Murder Mile and Extra Mile uh, we'll be back next week for the next part of The Blackout Ripper thank you for listening in and join us again bye bye <laughs>